Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 43, 1984's Streets of Fire, and the films of Walter Hill. With Bare Knuckle Boxers, Hot Rodders, Cowboys, Southerners, Hicks, Cajuns, Live Bands, Fist Fights, Gun Fights, Axe Fights, Whip Fights, and Leather Daddy, Willem Dafoe. Jacob? Yes. Look, I know you're going places with your singing and stuff, and I'm not the kind of guy to be carrying your guitars for you. But if you ever need me for something, I'll be there. Oh, thank you, Tom Cody! All right, five, four, three, two. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, tonight is what it means to be young. Oh my God, don't get me started. So this was your idea to do a whole Walter Hill episode um, but frankly, it wasn't tough to convince me because I love his movies pretty much as much as you do. Um, but why did you want to do Hill? He is, I mean, we were talking last, last time about like Todd Field for you and how he was like formative. I think Walter Hill was this filmmaker similar to Michael Mann that I started watching movies without realizing he had made all of them. It was one of those things where I kind of like went backwards into the auteur thing where I was like, I like all these movies. Oh, wait, they're all by the same guy, you know? And so I think, and I, I think the older I've gotten as I've done my own screenplays, like he is someone I want to be like as a creator, like he is like something I can, I think it's strive for. I'm not saying I ever be as good as him, but like the elemental nature, the mythic nature, um, that kind of mythic Americana just like absolutely speaks to my soul. And, and very similarly to like our, our mutual love for man, I think has a very interesting view of like masculinity, a complex view of masculinity um, and race and, and gender. And there's just, you get your two fisted tails with a whole lot of like context and, and subtext to like kind of dig into. I think it's also worth noting how you were talking about how like watching all of his movies back to back to back or, and you were kind of like piecing together the fact that like, they're all made by the same person. They're all very much marked by like the autorist stamp, let's say. Uh, but how I really went through his stuff, like I always knew him as like a guy who made, you know, like last man standing. Um, he produced alien. Like I knew yeah. his name, wrote one of the screenplays, wrote yeah. one of the screenplays. Exactly. Like he was just kind of this legendary dude, like produced, Tales from the Crypt, like his name was on all this stuff that I really liked like growing up, but it wasn't really until I started working at Vulcan that I worked my way through his entire filmography because we used to have that director's wall at the store and he was the first director that I picked when I, I started working there that I was like, okay, I'm going to do this guy's like whole body of work in order, starting with hard times and then 
like you said, like started watching it and being like, oh yeah, like these all belong to one dude. But one of the coolest things about it is that they're all like mutations of very specific genres that he wants to do. Like Hard Times is basically like his pit fight, almost like sports movie. Yep. The Driver is his esoteric take on like the chase movie or the crime film. Like, almost like a Melville French kind of thing oh, too. Very, very Le Samurai yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then you get into like uh, his Westerns, like uh, the long riders, uh, wild bill, Geronimo. Geronimo. Um, and then all the way up to Deadwood being possibly the ultimate genre mu- mutation from him because you just watch it and it's like, he, puts like the standard beats of what you expect from these movies, but they're all his versions of it. Or he kind of like zags slightly when you expect him to zig, let's say 48 hours being one of the great examples of that too, is that we watch that now and it's like, it's easy post lethal weapon post a million buddy cop movies to forget that when you watch 48 hours, like there really wasn't a template for that at that point. And he was kind of making it up as he went along. And that movie's so hostile and ugly the entire time. And that's the thing I kind of realized. And he, he vocalizes it in, in extreme prejudice is that all of his movies are just about hostile men. Like, guys who, like, thrive in environments that are trying to kill them. And, frankly, that they're actively antagonizing the entire time. Because he always has, like, a shit heel in them. Going straight back to James Coburn in Hard Times. Like, he loves these, like, con men, these shysters, these dudes who just kind of slither in and out of these awful spaces of, like, society and make their living off of them. Yeah, they're all they all have the the energy of a um, a dime store novel too. I mean, that's why I've always liked his stuff. Um, of you could just pick this up on pulpy paper off a fucking you know rotating rack for like ninety nine cents in like nineteen sixty eight. I'll have that kind of again from two fisted tales to westerners to cop stories to you know the drivers very much these these pared down things. And I think I saw my my, my writing partner Yvonne. And we were saying that, like, underneath all of it, most Hill stuff, though, is it's a Western framework. Like, oh, no, yeah. no matter what the paint, what, what the trappings are on top. And, like, different variations of the Western. It's either, like, guy rides into a town yep. and plays, like, Yo Jimbo, like, in something like Last, Last Man Week. Standing. Yeah. Um, two guys have to escort a prisoner and ride out. Like, it's all the stories that you've seen packaged inside of Westerns just imprinted on these different... Uh, kind of, they almost feel like anthology installments. It's almost like Walter Hill is just one giant anthology writer being like, and this one's going to be like my military movie, and this one's going to be my deliverance, and this one's going to be my chase movie. But they're all like traced back to like the 40s and 50s, like serial westerns that he probably grew up watching. And, and you know, as we'll get to later on in the episode, like his newest film, Dead for Dollar, he dedicates to our boy Bud Bedecker. Exactly. I mean, these like these couple real low budget, but like all just like with a solid western plot. And, you know, still I was thinking of earlier, again, you brought up Tales from the Crypt. You know, EC Comics also had two fisted tales. I mean, th- this was that was their series of 
hot rod stories, um, cowboy stories, war stories. That's what Hill's doing. Well, and as we covered in our Tales from the Crypt episode, like that was the basis for... Is that your favorite episode of yes. all time? The Brad Pitt one? Yes, King of the Road. Exactly. Which feels like a Walter Hill movie. Yeah, you know? 100%. And he he totally, like... I, I think, the, honestly, the reason I love him now, too, is like the older I get, I'm more attuned to Hill than I am Michael Mann. Michael Mann's still my favorite filmmaker, but Hill speaks to me, and I like it keeps growing on me more. Like, man, I don't think I can love any more than I do. Hill has still has room to be like, oh, man, there's this, too? There's just more and more for me to kind of like get into his stuff. Also, again, with with the racial politics gets much more complex than man does. Man stays a step away from that most of the time. Also, again, very ugly. Like he's not afraid of the fact that like human beings hate each other for like very primal kind of unreasonable reasons. Yeah. For lack of a better term, like. All of his movies, even in like a joking sense, have this weird like racial antagonism going all the way up. Like you said, to uh, Dead for a Dollar had is embedded with it, you know. But like Hard Times has this whole class thing happening, kind of not even in the background. It's, like, it's literally it's in the, the story, title. yeah. Um, but most notably is Forty Eight Hours. I mean, Southern Comfort is an entire movie about. Southern tradition and how people even down there, white people hate each other the entire time. And something like extreme prejudice. One of the funniest scenes in the movie is the bank robbery scene, but it started with Bill Forsyth antagonizing one of his black teammates in this mercenary squad by basically calling him the N word and the F word. And yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Back to back, frankly. What is this, a Tarantino interview? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, okay. Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> but since you bring up cinema speculation, um, it it's good to remember that like Hill came up as this screenwriter writing movies for one of the ugliest American directors of all time, Sam Peckinpah. Like one of his breakout assignments was. The Getaway, Fuck his yeah. adaptation of it, which, uh, to bring up your point, is an adaptation of Jim Thompson. and Who you also love. <laughs> who I also love as well, and who is also, frankly, a Cretan. Um, but, like, in cinema speculation, you know, Tarantino writes this really great uh, essay about, you know, The Getaway and stuff. And it's mainly from Hill's point of view. Like, he actually interviews Hill for it to kind of get, like, a bunch of backstory and stuff. And how that movie changed from, like, Peter Bogdanovich directing it with Steve McQueen to suddenly it's Sam Peckinpah with Walter Hill writing, Steve McQueen in the lead, and Ally McGraw in it. And it's, like, one of the gnarliest, big-budget, PG-rated hits that would come out. But, like, you see the same acidity and, like, misanthropic tendencies that were present in... Sam Peckinpah's work, but where Peckinpah had felt like it was oozing from the director himself, humanity as a whole, where Hill's just kind of like, these two guys, they were born to hate each other. That doesn't mean that I hate them. Uh, very well put. And what is it, the whole thing is like the difference between like showing something and supporting it? Exactly. You know, I'm forgetting the, the words are used in, in film theory or whatever, but like, you know. Representation I, versus. Um, wait. What is it? Yeah. 
it's this old Scorsese thing that people yeah. say the difference between representing something and the words just like on the tip of my brain. I can't think of it though. Versus representation versus support. Not support. I'm, I'm just looking, I'm looking it up. See it's representation versus Endorse, endorsement. Endorsement, yeah. You know, the representation versus like endorsement argument. Exa- exactly that. And I've always felt that Hill is really interesting, like you're saying, in comparison to people who are doing similar things to him and people he collaborated with, like John Milius or Peckinpah. I think Milius is more of a um, follower of Peckinpah to the letter, where I think there's a more right wing kind of scary side to Milius. And Do you think Peckinpah was right wing? Maybe not, but I, sorry, but I'm thinking like Milius most certainly is almost like a pure fascist in his like worldview. Where Peckinpah, I feel like is more a misanthrope. Yeah, straight up misanthropic. Because I mean, even something like Cross of Iron, which is one of the great you know representation versus endorsement movies, like it's about. He finds sympathy for fucking Nazis. And it's like, and it's about, it takes place inside of a, a Nazi brigade. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Peck and Paul's like, Nazis, maybe not that bad. Yeah, no, you're right. So, but I think it's interesting when you compare him. Again, Milius has this fascist thing, and they work together on, on a few films. Um, you know, Milius worked on Geronimo and also worked on Extreme Prejudice. And they, they, they have similar interests of mythic storytelling, you know, but hard men. Hard men. Um, and the two the two fisted tails kind of thing, um, but what's what's interesting about Hill is that to your point about um, these two men were, were men were born to hate each other in forty eight hours, right? Is I think institutions are a big thing for him, where or just or society where these men were were put in this situation. They both come from their backgrounds, and the film doesn't judge either harshly. It. I don't, it doesn't support racism, but it's it's very much does not come down on Kate's in this like it's this, in this green book kind of I need to learn bullshit way. Yeah, because he's still a piece of shit by the end of the movie. And and you know they, I mean, I know you don't like the you're not a big fan of Walter Chow, but his his video essay I do agree with where it's like the best they can hope for is a little bit of detente for a little bit. And I, I also kept thinking of you know obviously as we know Tarantino's a huge Walter Hill fr- fan and a friend. I think of the scene in, in Hateful Eight where they're hanging the woman, when they're hanging Jennifer Jason Lee. It's like this black man, this white man can agree on one thing to hate this woman. And it's just this institutional thing. You all you see it in 48 Hours where Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, the one time they're really kind of talking is about women. When they're talking about finding, you know, he keeps saying about finding some wool. That's the one time they connect. I'm on a trim hunt. But it's like that's when they actually are, we're on the same page about that. And the women are... Well, are they're off, dudes. They're dudes. Like, in the yeah, end, they're still guys guided by their guns and their dicks. Like, yep. that's the, the like, apex Walter Hill character. Like, again, dating back to hard times. And even before that, I know it's a great fucking movie, but obviously, if nobody ever wants to watch it again because of one actor's involvement, they don't have to. But Hickey and Boggs mm. is actually the first blueprint for, like, the Walter Hill movie, only he doesn't... Uh, direct that one but you have you know bill cosby and robert culp you know in it reteaming after i spy and it's a 
straight up down and out like noir in the the classic hill style but like these guys aren't supposed to be friends that's part of it like he loves pairing one black guy and one white guy and figuring out like how do these two operate together and he kind of transplants that onto all of his movies going forward it's like how do i get this huckster james coburn to get this like elemental brawler and charles bronson to like work together they his movies become exploitation movies about exploitation in certain uh, degrees. Uh, Same with the driver. The driver becomes this pawn who's used by everyone from like the player, Isabella Gianni, who's just like otherworldly in that movie. And then Bruce Dern is basically the James Coburn character. And that is that he's this slithery hyper asshole detective just trying to get this one guy. And the thing that's amazing when you watch Hard Times and The Driver, like, back-to-back, like, one of the other kind of defining Hill, like, fingerprints, let's say, is the fact that, like, his style evolves with whatever tale that he's Mm. telling, but at the same time, you can still pick out, like, little images or brushstrokes or edits or whatever that you go... Oh, that's his. It's like all of those like Kurosawa wipes that show up in all of his movies because like the Warriors feels totally different from the driver. You know, like every movie, like that's one of the things that makes his early filmography so fucking fascinating is that you literally go from like hard times, the driver, the Warriors. Long Riders, then Warriors. No, Warriors and Long Riders, sorry. Warriors, Long Riders, um, which Long Riders is almost like a classically composed like post Peck and Pop, but also post Ford and Hawks, like Western. Like he's really, it's it's the beginnings of Deadwood. You can kind of see in his head is that he's like, he's trying to do this demystifying the old West kind of routine. But at the same time, he's still making a very sturdy, pulpy, serialized Western. And then you get to like 48 hours, which is one of the ultimate like, Americana, like urban nighttime movie with, you know, Nick Nolte and fucking Eddie Murphy, two of our biggest stars at the time. And also like, is Hill responsible for Eddie Murphy's like cinematic career, like almost entirely? Yes. I was writing this down. I watched, I've watched this movie three times this year. I watched 48 hours. so fucking good. It is a freight train and it's the scene. It's the honky-tonk scene is when Eddie Murphy became Eddie Murphy. Yeah. That's not putting too fine a point on it. I'm your worst fucking nightmare. But it, it's just, and when again, it's like, it is, you can feel, because he builds the tension before that scene of, again, the racial tension between our two characters. And then um, Nick Nolte's character, Kate's, and Hill let Murphy off the leash. They just let him cook. They, they let him cook. And it's like a 10-minute scene. It's so it's so amazing, And he's a movie too. star. He's a movie star. Yeah, and the way he stages and shoots it and blocks it and everything, yes. too, is that, again, it's like he's one of the masters of, like, not just, like, a set piece, but the set piece. Like, he will, like, take it and transmute it. It's like it could be a brawl in hard times. It could be an elaborate car chase in the driver. It could be a great, like, super bloody, meaty squib shootout in the Long Riders. And then you get to 48 hours, and it's him just being like, okay, you can almost see the train of thought in his head to where it's like this guy grew up and came of age, like, 
commanding a stage. So how do I translate that to cinema? And if you watch, like, he pulls everything back and it's all this wide shot of, like, Murphy just kind of prowling this club, looking for the next person to fuck with. And then as soon as he does, like, the camera gets up close and personal and it's him just getting in that dude's ear being like, you know who I am, man? And just, like, working that entire club. But it's he would take that same kind of formula and then apply it to the movie we're going to talk about here with Streets of Fire is that when you add musical set pieces and he shoots them with that kind of MTV style, like live music cutting, it's fucking amazing. He, I always look at Hill first as a screenwriter. Just, I, I come that way because I think he is a perfect classical screenwriter while he does postmodern stuff. Like, the dude knows structure like it's his fucking job. It's so like, – I'm talking character structure, plot structure. But I don't want to forget, like you're saying, as a straight-up director. Just he's, stylist. He's a master. And he's a master in the way that like Spielberg is, where it's like it's kind of invisible sometimes, where it's not super showy. But you're like, oh, wait, what did you just do? Like some very interesting – like you said, blocking and staging. But the, the thing, you know, he reaches this level when we get to – Streets of Fire and other films of almost like like cinematic transcendence. Like it's like yeah. it's cinema and the musical bookends in Streets of Fire are some of the greatest things I've ever seen projected on screen. I was having like a rough week last week and I was I put my headphones on. I can I can hook them into my um basically do 360 sound for my my PlayStation. I was like watching Streets of Fire for the first time in like a year. And I got off off my couch and was jumping around, no joke, jumping around and like dancing to that opening song. It is like you cannot be not physically viscerally moved by that film, those songs, but also there's moments like that in a lot of his stuff that are so physical. They make you like, just like kind of clench and flex. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it just has that like, Oh, that, that brawn to it, you know? Well, and it's part of the thing that defines him as a storyteller and a writer too, is that he his dialogue is like super quotable, but it's terse and it's never really expositional either. Yeah. Like his big thing is like defining character through action. Like yep. it's all about how they engage with their environment and how they engage with the other characters. The goals are always clearly defined. Like I got to get this prisoner to this place overnight, or we've got to, you know, we've got to earn this much money so that this debt is paid off and this guy isn't killed. Or like, I mean, the Warriors is literally, we just got to get to Coney Island. We got to get home. Like, that's we're, it. Yep. That in Southern Comfort. We're stuck behind enemy lines. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You pair everything away. And, you and you know, you I remember one time asking me about Heat. You said, what do you love about Heat? What makes Heat a great film? And we both realized, like, the plot is not this super, like, original idea of cop, no. you know, it was it was everything man brought stylistically. And I'm looking here at IMDb right now for the the log line for Streets of Fire. A mercenary is hired to rescue his ex-girlfriend, a singer who's been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang. That's Which, not that's the movie, but that's not the movie. I was like, that's technically true, but not at all. But that that yeah, that is like you know, it's taking away at its core. It's a simple idea. Like you're saying, it's a simple like genre plot where you can boil down so simply trespass, you know, two, two guys try to find gold hidden in an old, old building and are caught by gang members. Another well, behind enemy lines kind of riff like Southern comfort. Yeah. With, with racial stuff going on of like, we're not supposed to be here. This is not our, our land. But, you know, I was also thinking 
we were talking last week. I think we were both just getting excited about this episode. We're both <laughs> such. I the, mainlined the early years of Walter Hill from Hard Times all the way through Extreme Prejudice. Just watch them all in order, including Brewster's Millions. I, I it's the one I missed, um, but he still fun. I, I need to do the rewatch that one. But there's something we talked about, and I think what makes him interesting is he kind of has two major modes, and he has the full-on fantasy comic book world. And he has some of but they feel realistic. Like Forty Eight Hours feels like the real world to me. Or like um, long writers, like draws from actual American outlaw figures. Yes, and that and that that one is kind of a mix where you get a little bit of the mythic quality, the, the fantasy, but also it's it's supposed to be like biopicy at moments too. It's Deadwood. Yeah. Like it literally is the template for Deadwood. It's like okay. If you were to Wikipedia any of these fucking guys, like you're going to find information on it. All those beats are in this movie. It's the same way that like Deadwood kind of operates, but he's like, this is what they felt like. This is what they smelt like. This is how they interacted with with each other. And then he adds that layer of like casting real life brothers with like James and Stacy Keach, the Carradine brothers. Like, it's just like, and then uh, the guests too, as um yeah, as robert the Ford. fords yeah, yeah exactly yeah who end up killing jesse james in the end it's just like he has a very specific vision for each movie and like long riders i don't think is entirely successful i think it's a lot of fun and very interesting yeah almost as like a building block movie inside of the filmography it's not my favorite <laughs> but like well I, I think that's something that we can talk about too is that his actual straight up westerns might be his least successful movies i I would agree i i think that when he puts it underneath as the as the kind of building blocks it works much better yeah because you know you have i think geronimo is a is a mess um it's a really it's i haven't seen it in forever i i had never seen it and so i watched it for this episode and milius wrote that one too milius wrote it and it's there are scenes that are like pure walter hill like there's a there's a shootout with um, this is Robert Duvall character who's like a racist, kind of somewhat racist Southerner, but it's more again that matter of fact. Like this is where I grew up. I don't hate anybody. This is just who I am. It's the so the Southern comfort thing. Very is much that it's like these people are racist kind of assholes, but like he has, I don't know if it's a reverence, but it's certainly a respect for like quote-unquote southern traditions like this is just who they are this is where they come from i'm not apologizing for it but again it's like they're defining character traits well he also I mean, similar to our conversation about todd field last week there are there are gradations of, of right. the spectrum right so you know you southern comfort similar to geronimo you have you know people like um uh, Keith Carradine, who's like, I'm a Southerner. I'm not super proud of it. We're all a bunch of fucking hicks, but like, I'm not a piece of shit. And then you have like Fred Ward, who's kind of a monster. Like, he's a fucking bottom feeder, right? Yeah, he's or, a gargoyle in or, that movie. Or the guy he's was so good in it. He's so. Or is it Lewis Smith, the actor, the guy who shoots the machine gun? Right. He's also in Final Terror and Buckaroo Banzai. Um, Poor Peter Coyote in Southern Comfort oh, he just gets, gets his fucking head murked. He gets pumpkined. I mean, like, just what a squib. It, too. It's just like, and I love. I actually love that actor too. And I just seeing him. I just rewatched E.T. and like Legend I had of that Billy in, Jean. Oh yeah, just fucking great. Um, but you know, I was thinking about that again. The way that that while Hill doesn't get super judgy, he will put characters like you said who are bottom feeders. Who are like, no, 
that's a bad dude. Almost like how man uses Wayne Grow. It's like there are people. Oh, that's of, a good comparison. There are people of honor, but there's also just monsters in this world. And you get that in Geronimo, where so you have this this Duval character who's like kind of. Um, he was an Indian hunter, like an Apache hunter. Like he was hunting them, and but he never scalped. It was more like for the government. And they come across some scalp hunters, played by Stephen McHattie as the lead, a young Stephen McHattie as the scalp hunter. And they run into them in this like Mexican bar. And you see where Duvall draws his line as a character. He's like, I, you know, I work for the government. I have a job. I'm not a monster. I don't kill women and children. I don't fucking scalp. I don't and, enjoy it. And, and he, they fucking murder all of these scalp hunters. And you can see that's Hill being like, no, this is the moment where we see like where the line is drawn. Everything else is gray, but this is like, no, these guys deserve <laughs> true justice. You know what I'm saying? Well, what's interesting is that extreme prejudice kind of has a moment like that too, to where like you're caught up with all of these like morally fucked up people. Yeah. In which everybody, I will say that, like, I think Extreme Prejudice, even though Streets of Fire is probably my favorite Hill movie, the one I've rewatched a bazillion times at this point, yada, yada, yada. I think Extreme Prejudice is his best movie. I think it's the front to back, the movie where I watch and I'm like, this is it. This is like the mission statement, like whatever it is, like 12 years into his directorial career at that point. And yeah. where he just gets it exactly right. But I like that it shares a similar kind of theme with Geronimo that you're describing and that Milius is involved in both of them in that, you know, you have this entire world that he builds of these like former like military mercs now who are all working together, which also what a tough guy movie. Oh fucking extreme prejudices. God. Like Michael Ironside, Fucking William Forsyth. William Forsyth. Clancy Brown. Yeah, I was going to say the fucking Kurgan. Um, Powers Booth in the greatest Powers Booth role of all time. Like, no, like, full stop, no exceptions. Like, nobody understood what a force of nature fucking Powers Booth was like Walter Hill. Like, he. Even Southern Comfort, too. Yeah, Southern Comfort. He's amazing. And fucking Deadwood. Yeah. Like. He's on fire. Cy Tolliver. Like, you can just tell that even though Hill basically, he directed the pilot for Deadwood and then kind of exited during the first season's post-production, I believe it was, because he had some creative clashes with David Milch. Talk about two guys probably difficult to work with working together. I heard Milch is very difficult. Yeah, very, very difficult. But like, you know, Cy Tolliver feels like a pure Walter Hill creation too. Like him, a lot like Murphy in 48 Hours just being like, you see that guy? Just get out of his way. We're going to clear out and just let him cook. And Powers Booth gets to do the full like deep south like Shakespeare in that series that's just absolutely amazing but in uh, Extreme Prejudice like that's Hill doing his Peckinpah film and like like Peckinpah and like The Getaway and a lot of his other movies The Wild Bunch and everything it's about the this world of killers and figuring out okay which ones are still acceptable by like an audience standard where we're not sitting here and watching them and being like, Oh, I really want to be like Clancy Brown with a machine gun here. (laughs) Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But like, it's almost like there's that moment where they turn on each other and they realize Michael Ironside has essentially sold them out. And Clancy Brown is like, 
dude, we were soldiers once. Like, this is fucked up. Like, this isn't what we all signed up for. It's a similar thing to what you're describing with Duvall and that is that he's like, you know what? We've done some fucked up shit in the past. Like, we've been on these black ops. We've been on these missions together. But, like, those were orders. You know, this is like you're turning us against each other and you're willing to sell us out for that. And that's not right. I, I think I rewatched Extreme Prejudice too, and that there's a couple things that I think make that movie so special. I would agree. I think that's like him with one of his biggest budgets. Um, yeah, because it, you, it's, that's it, Mario Casar and Andrew Vajna, right? Yeah, so that's what I'm thinking of. It's them plus Buzz Fetchins as the producer. Because that's the beginning of Carlico or Coralco. Um, it was right after they had done, well, they had already, sorry, right. It was the beginning, but they had just done uh rainbow first blood part two. Right. Yeah. And they were can, emerging as like the next big, like action genre studio. Yes. Giving money. And this felt like it's in the same world as Rambo first blood part two. Yeah. Like now that was much more like simplified. Cheese. I love, I love Rambo two, but like this has the complexity of, of Milius and, and Hill in there. It's it's that um, plus it has that kind of it has that ridiculous over the top Coralco action to it like because even for Hill I don't think he's ever had the budget to go that crazy as he did with this one because even like Forty Eight Hours he had a budget but it's like you're in a city you can't go like and it's also not that kind of movie it's uh, also very it's much more character driven even right. though we're like. Extreme Prejudice is still pretty character-driven. It has a ton more action yes. than 48 Hours even does. Well, it's it's also, like, I think from a screenplay perspective, too, it, it keeps you on your toes because you're like, I don't know who the bad guy is for, like, an hour. Because it's very Greg's. You have this cop, this guy. You have these these other dudes, I guess, a third party of Michael Ironside's crew. You're like, are you guys bad? Are you good? Like, it's really close to the driver. To yeah. Where it's, it's very much about one guy getting caught up between a bunch of different factions who are at war behind the scenes, but like not, he know it's almost like he knows he's a pawn in it and is willing to go along because he has his own ends that he wants to basically, you know, uh, fulfill, let's say, but like, at the end, like we don't know who he's going to ultimately like ally with and go to war with, except for Powers Booth. We know Powers Booth is the devil in that movie. Yes, um, but that's. I mean, it's a it's a movie. I remember when I saw it for the first time with my buddy. We rented it. It's probably like eight years ago, and this was when you couldn't find it on Blu-ray. There was like no Blu-ray. It was like a shitty DVD. I think it was full screen. So it like, was the old. It was the same one we had at Vulcan. It was the old. Uh, artisan pan and scan because that was the thing is this movie was impossible to find for years in any kind of really good format until they just put it out on that awesome blu-ray restaurant it's gorgeous it's it's, it looks amazing it's also that transfer that's been floating around i believe from a french blu-ray because it has the studio canal logo on it too yeah not that that matters but you know it's it's beautiful. The blue the blue skies and like all the colors are just gorgeous. And it's a different movie. Those squibs. Oh, like there's again. Walter Hill had a very specific style of squib. Like when you get shot in one of his movies, you don't just like bleed. Like your chest explodes. I would love to do like a movie series of directors with two fisted guns. How they all use them differently because you have like because Hill does that. He's not John Woo. 
Um, I think they're influenced by each other at moments where you could see, like, I think especially Last Man Standing feels very John Woo at moments. Well, but it also feels kind of Desperado, when, too, was, was big. Well, and Desperado itself is a Woo riff to a certain yeah. degree, but that was during, like, that period when Woo was actually accepted into the American mainstream. Yeah. His Hong Kong movies had made their way over and become kind of like cult sensations. He had made Hard Target, you know, and he was making, because Last Man Standing's, what, 97? The same it's 96. Year? Okay. So a year before uh, Face Off. And same year as Broken Arrow. And same year as Broken Arrow. Yeah. So like he was in the zeitgeist, let's say. Yeah. Um, so it made sense that Hill's doing it. But again, it's Hill doing his version of it to where it's like nobody here is going to shoot each other in slow-mo or jump through the air with doves. They're going to go through some windows. They're going to go through some <laughs> windows and their, their fucking heads are going to explode when they get hit by bullets. That's what's like, I think, one of the, I mean one of the things in the intro is like gunfights. I mean, I think that his fight scenes of all, of all kinds are when you, when you peel everything else away are what I love. Like maybe most about him is I don't think there's anyone who shoots a gunfight as viscerally as Hill. Um, there are crazier gunfights and like hard boiled where it's this more, it's an operatic slow-mo thing. But in terms of a shorter gunfight in a bar, or what have you, even like this, like in the less action heavy 48 hours, like the gun battles in that are mind blowingly good. Yeah. They're so physical, but you think about, he also does the thing where he beefs up the sound design of all the guns where they each sound like cannons. It's the, it's the cannons and it's, it's the also use of the, of the, um, the, the set. Like it's everyone falls into shit. Like even in dead for a dollar, like this dude flies up and onto a table. Like people are just being just, well, it's visceral. It's visceral. Like you it's said, just, like yeah. everything about him is again defined by like action. To where like it, it's almost the what was the the Howard Hughes movie where he was shooting like all the dog fights, and you oh. realized that nobody could figure out how fast the planes were going unless from he the put aviator actual, it, yeah. like clouds in it. Well, Hill's idea of clouds are fucking windows. Is that he's like, you know how you really feel like a gunfight or a fist fight or whatever? Have that dude put another dude through a fucking window and then you get the idea. He and uh, Argento both. Argento's like, what yeah. if she gets killed but her face also gets pushed through a plate glass window? That would really take it up a notch. What if instead <laughs> of getting stabbed, she gets a meat cleaver in the face? Do you think they'll feel it then? And then a window. <laughs> yeah, and then a window and then she gets hanged. And she gets pushed through a glass uh, ceiling slowly <laughs> falls. I know if we watch it scrape her face off and then she lands in a noose. I mean, I mean, it's great. It's fucking awesome. Um, well, so we're talking about extreme prejudice, but I believe it's the same year as crossroads. Sure. Which was a first time for me. I think first time for you yep. as well. And I avoided this for my whole life. I had, I feel bad. My, my best friend in college, Ethan, was a guitarist, an amazing guitarist. So he loved this movie because it really gets into like the magic of being a guitarist. And I was like, eh, I'll get to it. Ralph Macchio, fuck him. And it is kind of like they were, you could tell, I, I doubt that Hill wanted Macchio. It feels more like, oh, it's just another karate kid. It's like a kid learning from an older man, you know, from a different culture. Like at its core, you can see what the studio was trying to do with it. Yeah, they're trying to replicate a very specific like strain of success with it. But it's Hill doing it, so it's a lot darker and weirder. I didn't like this movie like you did. I kind of struggled with a lot of it because I thought a lot of it was kind of corny. But when it does get, like, gnarly, especially for, what, a PG-rated coming-of-age movie? Like, it gets fucking weird. It's – that's – and I – I 
this one, you know, we talk often about like how I like things more like structured and kind of perfect. You like messy. This is the kind of messy I like where I was like, you know what? It's problematic. Um, not even problematic, like, like cancel problematic, but just like, it's, it's not a great script. It's kind of messy. Um, but it, it and I, I like that he's still dealing with his stuff of like the complexities of, of racial relationships, like you know, an old African-American man, this young white kid who thinks he can just learn the blues. And I would, that was why I, was, I also avoided it. I said, is this going to be about a, basically a fucking La La Land? You know, about a white guy fake, culturally appropriating, you know, jazz or the blues. And it kind of toes the line pretty well for a lot of the film where it's like. I think the theory behind it is more interesting than the film than the execution. that results. Yeah. Because it's really about a kid who wants to be a guitarist, is obsessed with the blues, discovers this aging blues man in like more or less like a mental facility. It's, it's just, it it's just, just an old, it's an old, home? it's a hospice. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and they go on a, he breaks them out of it and they go on a road trip together so that they can record this like mythical song that Robert Johnson was supposed to record and then the 30th song, the 30th song. And then it's like, it becomes about this white kid learning what the blues actually are, that these songs weren't just things that these guys were fucking making up. It was yeah. like, this was about their lives. It was about like having no money, having no car, losing your woman being, yeah. Well, being homeless, like basically working for pennies palling around with like the dregs of society because those were the only ones who would give you the time of day racist cops racist cops like it's just it's him having to live it which does give it and that's the thing is that this was you you brought up green book earlier to me this was the closest to being walter hill's like green book for me to where it's kind of like watch the white kid learn from the sage old black man but then you get to the whole stretch of the Jamie Gertz stuff where she's the like underage prostitute living in these motels, basically making deals with the owner so that they can get a cut of like underage trim. And then she becomes like their 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 the third wheel on this kind of sidekick adventure. And like the stuff with her is just such a, a zag that you're like, oh, what the fuck is that? Where is this movie going? It's that 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 was we were I was texting you when I was watching it before you watched it, and I was like, yeah, it go it goes dark, it goes heavy, and that's the scene I was I was talking about because it's I don't know how you do that with lighthearted nature. They didn't. It's very like you know like lot lizard kind of energy. This really it's scary. Real it's really weird. It feels from a different movie. It's like, and I think that's the other part of Crossroads that I struggled with is that like all the corny stuff, it felt like almost like an ABC after school special. And then you get into the stuff that you can clearly tell Walter Hill wants to make. And you're like, Oh, wow. Well, I kind of wanted to be this movie the whole time, but at the same time, maybe not. Well, that's, I think another reason I enjoyed watching it was it again. I, I totally agree. You could feel it's not fully his. He didn't write it. You know, it's by the writer of Hidalgo. It's like that kind of, you know, again, also mythic, but more cheeseball mythic. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's moments where you see Hill like really like biting, kind of chewing on. Oh, I like this element. I'm going to go with that. And I think the final scene of them basically playing the devil for the soul of Willie. Yeah, you is, love that. Shit. I love that scene. It's pure Walter Hill. It is the the explosive, visceral nature of music. It has that. It doesn't land quite as hard as the end or beginning of Streets of Fire, but it has that, again, he knows how to shoot a, a musical scene, you know, um, 
musical without being a musical. Well, let's use that as a jumping off point to actually get into Streets of Fire because one of the big things about Hill is that music, whether or not he's making a musical like this or Crossroads, which are, I don't even know if I want to say music. They're more like non-traditional musicals. Yeah. They're, they have, like Crossroads is almost like the first Damien Chazelle movie ever. That's it. That, again, La La Land, yeah, right? Is yeah. That it's, well, it, it reminded me of Whiplash yeah. more, but it's like, yeah, like you just have, like the musical numbers become like the action set pieces. They're just kind of thrown in there and, and the, they're the big payoff to the story that we're watching. Streets of Fire, not so much. Like, I remember researching this movie because I've written about it a bunch in the past, but like he envisioned it as like almost like a Wagner opera where you have these soaring bookends with the, you know, Ellen Aim and the attacker sequences with Diane Lane at the front. And then you have basically like a traditional Walter Hill movie in the middle, like a Siegfried story. Kind of just telling you, and it's again, like you read that log line. It's straight up. Just Tom Cody comes to town. His girlfriend is captured by an evil motorcycle, gay leather (laughs) motorcycle gang led by Willem Dafoe. Rick Moranis is the dickish. Like he's the skeezy. Yep. Like kind of uh, lizard character of the, that he that you know Hill loves so much, and then they just go on a run all night rescue mission to get her back. That's it. That's the movie. Only he inserts musical numbers and pop songs, and like an R and B like five heartbeats style like yep. group into it with like a ridiculous cast. Yeah, with one of the most insane casts like ever assembled. And Kelty Williamson it. and t- yeah. Robert Townsend. Robert Townsend, <laughs> yeah, Michael T. Williamson, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, Willem Dafoe, and then Michael Prey. Amy, Ma- Amy Madigan. Amy Madigan. Who's great. But it's like we always really liked Walter Hill from like a mythic storyteller standpoint. But then when you added music, it was like, holy shit. This movie's just off the charts in both like a stylistic exercise and like the music emphasizes like how emotional these movies can actually be on just a very primal, satisfying level. Like I said earlier, I mean, I was off the couch listening to this and this is a, we've talked before about like how we both get emotionally involved in films in different ways. And I think like I don't get super teary eyed when I watch like actual sad movies I get tear out at the end of this movie every single time. Oh, it, 100%. It is so mythic. Him, the, the, the line I did in the intro of him saying goodbye to her moves me. It's so simple. It's so Walter Hill. It's so Western. Well, that whole set piece it's, at the end that leads uh, up and concludes with tonight is what it means to be young is like some of his very, very best filmmaking because like you hear, you know, you, you come in not to jump too far ahead into the movie's plot or whatever, but you literally open with what we already know is kind of a coda. Yeah. Um, because like the main story's over. Bad you know, guys are gone. The bad guy's been vanquished. Girl, the princess is is back to her tower where she's going to perform now. And so like you open with this coda with this amazing uh, rendition of Dan Hartman's I Can Dream About You. And then... You know, we cut backstage where all of this melodrama is essentially happening. And the way he stages that final goodbye between uh, 
Tom Cody and Ellen Aim, just with them in the center, the stage in the background, Backlit, the music yeah. starting to rise. It's just, it's an incredible sequence. And then he jumps right into Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, which is like, if you're going to send your movie off on a note like that, I don't think of, there's a better one in history. No, I'm getting chills seriously sitting here talking about it because the, yeah. the way it cuts from the music to Tom Cody standing in the doorway in the back waiting to leave is just like... Oh my God. It's, it's again, it's transcendent cinema for me. It is like he, he hits these, he hits these moments specifically in streets of fire and a lot of his films where I am like, I'm so moved on a lot of different levels. Right. And I'm like, to the point where I'm like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now, but this is, I'm just like, and I think part of it is, I've been trying to think a lot about it is again with, this is one of his more fantastical, you know, Another time, another place, right? He says at the beginning. Write it with the title card. You know, it's, it's straight up like it's like Star Wars, right? A long time ago. But this is like, this is not New York. This is not the real world. This is this like the 1950s never ended, but there's 80s music. It's, those are, this is an era too of the 80s when they're obsessed with the 50s, like Back to the Future. Right. And it's like, so you get the best of both worlds. Well, it's even on the poster for a few of the Streets of Fire too. It was like, the styles of the 50s with the sounds of the 80s. I, I think that's exactly what they're doing, which is cool because you get like the greasers, you get the hot riders, you get the bikers, you get all the elements from like, um, again, from like a Two-Fisted Tales thing or from any hot rod, you know, Corman movie almost. Right. You know, and I think what I what really makes this film work is also the sets because he's full on like the level of like Tim Burton's Batman where they have, it's, it's the back lot. This is not a city. This is a set. Like you could see they had the control like that. And I watched the making of it. It's all this backlot stuff. They had complete, they built out. Well, that's the most, one of the know? most musical elements of it too, is that it feels like, like side story or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is that it's all manufactured and it allows him to create this world to where like, I think the closest companion in his filmography is the Warriors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Towards that same mythic comic book uh, storytelling that he creates this whole kind of universe around. But with the Warriors, like he's actually shooting in New York. Like those are actual New York City streets. They're textured. You have the Coney Iron. Uh, the Coney Island, like Wonder Wheel in the background. Like some of that is obviously staged and what have you. But like he's capturing a very specific strain of grimy New York that did exist at the time. And he's just inserting all of this cartoonish yes. gangland stuff into it. But with streets of fire, it's all artificial. It's all yep, like exactly. this rubbery texture to where like you feel like if you were on set and you would lean on the wrong, wrong wall, it would just kind of fall away behind you. Like it doesn't feel real, but that's what makes it feel that much more truthful to its own existence. It feels like a movie. Yeah. It feels like a it's fucking. It's the De Palma, like the artifice is the purpose. Well, and I, you know, my, my buddy Yvonne called me after seeing the Batman and he goes, say what you want with the script. That's a movie. That right. Is a, that is a, those are sets. It's a that, capital C cinema movie. And it is like, but it's like not supposed to be the real world. Not just this, that it's Gotham. This is not real reality. Right. Like, and that's what, that's what he's doing here too is again, this could be in space, like a different, a time that never happened. And I think that that and the warriors too, like those are, like you said, so tied together. It allows him to ha play more with like mythic and archetypes, mythic archetypes. I think is Tom Cody, like Michael Prey is not a good actor. 
Um, I rewatched. He's Bat- a block of meat. He's a block of meat. I, w- I watched Bad Moon last night, which I like. Um, yeah, it's fun. And he's Eric like, Red. he's actually better in Bad Moon than he is in this. But I don't know. Okay, we'll calm down. He has more fun in Bad Moon. He acts a bit more. I think that Streets of Fire, though, Hill knows how to use him. Like he, he's a yeah. lantern jawed asshole hero. That's it. He's like, in the movie because, like, Nick Nolte said no. Or, like, one of his usual, like, regulars that he really likes. Like, you could see Powers Booth as, like, the hero here, but he's obviously not going to play that role. Nick Nolte could play they're too, it too, they're, they're too, too old. old. Yeah. yeah, but it's like he's just doing the very stoic uh, military hero or, like, Again, to take it back to Westerns, the lone gunman who rides into town and is here to save the day, like, he's doing a very specific thing. It's just Michael Pere is a sentient slab of beef. Yeah, and I, I watched the making of, and I, he was not the first choice. Like, no, God, no. He couldn't have been. And I think they Because this out. is also Hill at the height of his powers. Not to cut you off, I'm oh, yeah. sorry, That's but fine. it's like... Like, Hill is a huge hit at this point. He has fucking 48 hours under his belt. He's working with Joel Silver. He's produced Alien. Like, yep. The Warriors is a big hit. Like, he has a bunch of stuff to his name that this is Aliens almost is like... in pre-production. Exactly. Yeah. Like, he's kind of at the peak of his powers here. So, like... And I don't think a movie like Streets of Fire gets made unless you have some weight to throw around because it's so big and weird and goofy and probably expensive, frankly. Um, but yeah, there's no way Michael Prey was the first one. It's like the same way that like, uh, you know, you look at some of these movies and you wonder like who could have been up for this? Yeah. Who could have been up for it? And, and it is again that you kind of off what you were saying. It's one of those movies that feels like you're amazed it exists. Even at that era, you're amazed yeah. that, that a film this size where Hollywood, this weird, this weird, this like, this auteur driven, this like this, it's like it's so one of a kind. There's nothing else like it out there. Um, that every time I watch it, I feel this sounds super fucking cheesy, but I feel like thankful that like this is. I'm like I cannot believe this was. Yeah, that's how I feel about Angel Heart. Similarly, where I'm like, it's one that slipped who, through the cracks. Who made this movie? You know, and also you know, Castner and Bajner. Like, how did this just like was able to be made? And it's it's feels made for me. I think it's another reason we've talked before about when you why you love a thing. It's like it feels like Walter Hill was like. There's this kid who was born a year ago. It's 1984. I'm making this for him when he's in his 30s. Yeah. You know, it's weird, but it feels so personal. Well, because I have one of the, it's a weird, like, this movie showed up twice in my life. I didn't actually see this growing up, but I had a basketball coach, Gary Blair. This, like, one of the most hard-nosed, tough guy dudes you'll ever meet. Like, I'll never forget about him. I haven't talked to him in years at this point. But, like... He had this nose because he was a, a college football player and I believe strong safety. So he had broken it so many times that you looked at it and it was just like this nub in the center of his face. And he was just like he was known for just doing nothing but being like he was almost like a Walter Hill character. He was just very gruff, terse, like but a really good coach at the same time. But he used to joke and make fun of me because even as like a kid, you know, playing basketball when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I was collecting all these VHS tapes and stuff. And he would see my collection. We would come over because he and my dad coached the teams together and they would hang out and have beers, whatever. And he'd look at my collection and be like, look at all this shit. He's like, I own like three movies. He's like, I own our wedding videos, the Godfather and the Blair family classic streets of fire. 
And it was always like, and he what? would, this was a running joke. Like he was like, I love Streets of Fire. Have you ever seen Streets of Fire? And it's like, he talked about it so much that I couldn't believe now looking back on it that I never actually watched it because it was like one of those things where you're like, because the way he presented it was almost like this goofy thing that only he liked. And I remember my dad being like, yeah, that movie's okay. It's kind of fucking weird and corny, but sure, whatever. And then it wasn't until I moved to Austin and I hadn't even gotten to it yet uh, when I was watching the stuff at Vulcan, because I would kind of like mix them in as yeah. I was like watching other stuff too. Like they played a 35 millimeter print down at the Ritz. And that's how I first saw Fuck. Streets of Fire for the first time was on the big screen at like 32 or 33 or whatever. And like you said, you just sat there and you were like, where the fuck has this been my entire life? Like I was crying. I was thrilled. I was just like this movie, the Blair family classic streets of fire. Is this fucking good? Who would have told like, did why wouldn't someone just pulled me aside and been like that guy? He's joking, but that movie's actually good. It, yeah. It's like, he's, he's goofing around. I, I honestly stayed away from it because uh, it said rock and roll fable. And I was not a musical. It guy. sounds stupid. I was like, I'm not a rock. I was, I was like, this looks dumb. I also, the book nook in Atlanta, I used to live right across from it, was this great bookstore that had like used records and DVDs, Blu-rays, comics, and like yeah. an amazing horror paperback section that I... Almost like a half price books here. Yes, but like I completely just ripped through everything there. And they always had like three copies of the Streets of Fire LP. And I was like, what the fuck is this? This, this looks, is some trash. This looks stupid. Because when it was one of those things, when it, if no one's picking it up, it must suck. It's a, this subconscious thing. Now I can't find a fucking LP for my collection. It's like 50 bucks on I eBay. I might have two. Do you really? I, I definitely have at least one. Oh, man. Yeah. Because I, mean, I have one that's missing the corner. And then I think I have another one because I think somebody else gave it to me. I have that, and I have I have a bunch of weird soundtracks in mine. Like, I have, like, Sharky's Machine on vinyl. I don't know why. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'll, I'll check my collection oh, for you. Oh, you would make my fucking life. Um, but that was the same way. I, I kind of, like, different from your story, but had this, like, preconceived notion of what it yeah. was. You thought it was going to be a corny piece of shit. And even though I already like Walter Hill, I still didn't give it a chance. And I, I think from the beginning, I was like, what the fuck? Fuck. Yeah, that opening sequence kicks in, and the first 10 minutes, you're like, what is going on? This is amazing. Yeah, you got this, like, Bonnie Tyler-esque singer, you know, just destroying this song. Well, let's talk about Diane Lane for a second. Is she the hottest woman who's ever existed in this movie? Well, she was 17. I don't care. I know, but I, I remember I think like she was so young. Like they had to like get her parents' permission to do this movie or something like that. Because this isn't the stretch where she was like the ultimate punk rock and roll princess, dating yeah. back to like ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, uh, Rumblefish. Oh, she's so two good where in that. she's so good in that. And I really like that movie. A lot. I'm missing one that's mixed in there, but like she's doing the whole Linda Mann's like out of the blue kind of like punk era thing. But she was like the pixie princess of that. And Streets of Fire is her like ascending to like pure like, oh my God, like goddess level. I didn't realize she was only 17 in it. I thought she was like in her like late teens, early 20s. At I, this th I think it was like if, if I think she turned 18 while they're making it or something like that. What I'll say is 
Hill. I take nothing back. No, no, that's fine. No, no. I, I mean, she's go- she's gorgeous. She's absolutely gorgeous. And she still is fucking gorgeous. And the height, the, again, mythic quality that he adds to Ellen Aim as a figure does her every favor, too. Like, she's already gorgeous, but it makes her this, like, larger-than-life rock goddess. Well, it's like he calls it a rock and roll fable, but it's really a fairy tale. Because yes. this is just the princess, and then Willem Dafoe is the dragon, and then the you have the knight with Michael Pere who comes in to rescue her. Like, it's just, it's operating on that same type of, like, storytelling level. Well, I think that's why Hill has been so successful, though, is he... Like when Lucas is good, he drills down to the archetypes. Right. Like he he's not quoting Campbell like Lucas did, but it's that same or level. Cameron. Or Cameron. So yeah, they they all get people rip on Avatar and they're like, oh, it's the same as Fern Gully. I'm like, every story's been told before. You're fucking stupid. Like yeah. I hate those people so much. You're like, oh, you notice it's the same as Dancing with Wolves? Whoopty fucking shit. And maybe that's the thing we've been trying to say about his movies this whole time for the last hour of recording is that like Hill knows that every story has been told before, so he's just going to tell it to you his way. Yeah, with his elements and with and w- uh, the way I've I've heard before is like you know that's the skeleton you hang whatever ornaments you want on top of that and that's what he does like he brings yeah your fair you know he brings the texture he brings the music he brings again his dialogue that just sings I mean the driver is an entire movie made up of atmosphere yeah yeah and and he I I just I mean it's, I love him so much and like he gets me. Excited! I get. I love cinema again when I watch this shit. That sounds fucking hokey. Whenever I watch Streets of Fire, I'm I'm just like I'm so like as a as a film critic, as a filmmaker, I'm just jazzed by the possibilities. That sound. I hope it's not too over the top. No, not at all. Because it is one of those movies, like you said, that you watch and you're like, oh, this is a miracle. This even exists. Yeah, like it's crazy. And also, like not only because it has these young stars coming into their own. I mean, like we haven't even hit on Willem Dafoe yet who like Willem Dafoe wasn't a thing in 1984 yet because we're what three years away from platoon at this point or two years, 86, but we're a couple years out from platoon, let's say, which would really catapult him into kind of like iconic status from the poster on, you know, but like in streets of fire, he is like this menacing, piece of pure flesh sexuality that's kind of crawled out of the pit of hell and is just there to menace everybody he encounters like he's so good brandon threw up on our twitter account uh something that i always notice every time too when i watch is that his the reveal of his face my favorite scene during that opening sequence when Ellen Aim and the attackers are doing nowhere smoke. fast and the smoke comes up and then he just emerges from the shadows it's so fucking awesome but like Defoe is so wired into that whole scene and like he does so much with so little dialogue like he doesn't have many lines in this but like for all you know, like he's giving you pages of Shakespearean monologues, like throughout the movie, just through like his weird gazes and facial tics and expressions. Like he's amazing in this. Also, his costume designer, like, should have been given all the Academy Awards, at least from like the gay S and M Academy Awards. Like leather daddy overalls that yeah. he wears. It's like, <laughs> what is going on? He's what well, I was. It's funny as you were talking. Like that was the scene I was going to bring up too. I, that it's like. Because he doesn't even move, like the light just sl- like you could tell you had a just dimmer. Across him. Yeah. It's almost like they did for like Michael Myers in Halloween, where he comes out of the shadows. It's like, 
and he just materializes. And but again, you know, to your point earlier of like you watch the first ten minutes of this movie, every element from the music to um, the set design to but again, this, then these like the first time you see the the um, the gang when they come in and they're just silhouettes. And they're backlit by the the hallway light, and then it's them coming in, or even them riding the motorcycles um, under the bridge, yes. like before they even get into the club. It's it's so like, again, you feel I'd I'd love to see this in the theater and just feel like the the bass. And I'm getting I'm thankfully I'm actually getting surround sound for Christmas, so we're Ooh. gonna we'll have to watch Streets of Fire and like fucking crank that and the shootout and heat, and just see. <laughs> <laughs> There's one last performance I want to talk about just because it kind of stands out in this dude's body of work is Rick Moranis. Is this the only time he's ever allowed to play kind of like the heel character? Like he's always usually like, obviously we all know Rick Moranis mostly from like dad roles, like honey, I shrunk the kids or like ghostbusters yeah. and stuff. Like he's always either like the lovable nerdy dad or just the lovable nerd, frankly, yeah. or like the SCTV the strange you know, brew, strange stuff. brew yeah. guy. Like you know, he was never allowed to really stretch and be like kind of a shithead or the villain or whatever. And Streets of Fire actually lets him be like this annoying little prick, and he's so good at it. He has so much fun in this. I was saying the same thing while I was watching. It. I was like, man, like because again, he's so in our brains, and he's been retired for a while of just like be, being the nicest salt to the earth lovable nerd little shop of horrors like i also always think of that too yeah when i think of him first and just those big bug-eyed glasses you know and from the beginning he's just this piece of shit and he owns it like i think all the scenes of him amy madigan and and, and michael Prey on the way to pick up ellen aim like when they're going into the battery of like just their dialogue back and forth of like because amy madigan's also wonderful in this movie she's having so much fun playing a lesbian they never say it um, There's a lot of weird, like, gay undertones to this movie because, like... I mean, Defoe. <laughs> Defoe's entire thing, like, it's almost like the musical version of Cruising, if you think <laughs> about it to a certain degree, because it's all about this straight, masculine guy descending into this, like, pit of, like, homosexual hell, almost. Like, that whole fucking uh, sequence where they go to that bar where that, like androgynous the stripper dancer is on the stage and nothing but like fishnets and everything. And like, I never know. And it's again, one of the things that like Walter Hill could have only existed in a very specific time and place. Like if Walter Hill emerged in 2022 and was like, I'm going to make hard times or 48 hours. They'd be like, no, you fucking aren't. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Sorry, sir. Sorry, sir. But uh, we're going to have to put the kibosh on your entire body of work. But because like here it is sort of problematic if you think of it in any kind of like abstract sense. It's almost like what what's going on here? But like, again, it's just this world that he designed that you can't imagine anybody else pulling off. It's. And it all feels of, you know, again, of a piece with like the warriors and elements of other films. It's like, while it is this complete fantasy, you can just, you can still see the auteur, like his, his interests, yeah you know, are, are still just completely. He's got Ry Cooter still fucking doing yep. all the music. He's got Jim Steinman penning the songs for, you know, 
nowhere fast, and, oh. and tonight is what it means to be young. Tom which, Petty's in there. Tom Petty's thrown into there. Oh, they do the uh, Stevie Nicks cover on it too. Like Hill loves music. Like he, it's a big part of his movies, and like for this one, he just he nails everything. But sadly, this was a huge flop. It was supposed to be a trilogy, I found out today. Yeah. I had no idea. So it was going to be a Tom Cody trilogy of just these adventures in this this faraway alternate reality of the 50s, 80s. Um, it was a, a monster. Not a monster, but it was a flop. Um, and it was not what they expected. But Universal put a lot behind it. It was Joel Silver. You know, yeah. they were really hoping for something big. And But I get, I, I get how do you advertise this movie. Yeah. You know, I just don't know what you do with it. Like it's I think obviously it's found an audience, a significant audience since, but I don't know what you do with it. But it is the epitome of a cult object, a thing this that is, failed in its time that found an audience through VHS tapes, through DVD, through repert really repertory screenings yeah. are the big one with this one with its modern cult audience. But it's like I'm so glad that it exists because it reminds you of a time when like studios would be like, sure, here's however many million dollars to make your fucking weird cowboy rock opera fantasy thing. Yeah. Before we do questions, you want to talk about Dead for a Dollar real quick? Yeah, sure. So this is his latest movie, which we never thought was going to happen because he kind of disappeared for like the last four or five years. The last one before this was the assignment five before that was bullet to the head, bullet to the head, neither of which are particularly good at all. Yeah. Like he's kind of, he has a longer filmography. I want to say than carpenters or about the same length, mm -hmm. but he kind of has the same trajectory to where like, he just reached a certain point and obviously ran out of gas and just churned out stuff that we were like, ah, this is just kind of feels like a, less competent carbon copy of something you'd done before. Yeah, because Bullet to the Head is like, use it over text. I, I had rose-tinted glasses for I saw it in the theater when it came out 10 years ago. I did too, but and I don't remember anything about it. I remember liking the axe fight with Jason Momoa, and I'm like, oh, there's elements, cool. It's a buddy, and I, it, like you said over text, like this is a straight-up, like, it is the elements of a Walter Hill thing, but like almost like written by an idiot. Like, it is, it's all this really lame, like, buddy cop dialogue of like and like dad humor from Stallone is like ripping on Sung Kang and it's just like what it, it doesn't it feels so thin it feels so like someone else made their version of Walter Hill film the action scenes when they're done are good like when he actually gets into a shootout he does his thing but he didn't write the script either no and it, it's written it's just a shitty fucking movie and the assignment is kind of similar I never finished it it's not good you know, it's the weird, like, sex change hitman thing with Michelle Rodriguez. Yep. That that script had been floating around since the 70s or whatever. He wrote it as a comic made. book? Yeah, it was supposed to be a comic book, but, like, it's bad. We'll just leave it at it. It's pretty <laughs> bad. Uh, but then you get to uh, Dead for a Dollar, which is, I don't want to say his comeback, but it just feels like somebody was like, Walter Hill's around. Here's some money make the movie and he gets Christoph Waltz and Willem Dafoe in it. Rachel Brosnahan from Rachel. the biggest show on prime. Yeah. It's really sturdy. If kind of cheap looking 
and a little amateurish at times, it still delivers what we wanted from like that classic Walter Hill era. Yeah, I mean, again, at the end credits, he he dedicates it to uh, the memory of Bud Bedeker, and you can see that. I mean, it's it's more somewhat. Some, well, I don't buy into it one hundred percent. But I, you make the case. No, I mean, I, I think A.O. Scott went a little too heavy with his review where he straight up was like, this is a Bedecker film kind of. I'm, I think I'm, I'm mincing words a little bit. But um, I, I feel like he's being honest about the size of the movie. It's like, okay, Bedecker made these small character, more character driven about, you know, betrayals and things like that. So those elements, you, t- you talked really about what is a Western's different types of Westerns. Like this kind of feels like that more like, a group of people all on their way someplace, but it's like little double crosses and people befriending each other and connecting. It felt actually most similar to tall T for Bedeker for me, especially with the, the wife who'd been not married for love. Right. Uh, and had this complete heel of a, of a husband who kind of deserves to die. Um, and is Hamish Linklater having, doing a weird voice and wearing a hat, but, uh, but having fun. Um, but no, I, I really I enjoyed it. I think like when the violence happens, it's great. I will agree. It's like it's weirdly shot. Um, it's weirdly modern. It's again it's one of the films you could feel it's so digital. Um, and they they're using it almost feels like Public Enemies it, at certain points. There's, like there's how elements. digital it is. Yeah, and not as like purposeful Public Enemies. No, with it, yeah. But this is more like just like oh, we shot this on like a lower end red or something like that, or like a rented re. And there's like some pretty bad. Um, Drone shots, which are obviously drone shots, which always look cheap to me, unless you have like, unless you're making ambulance. Um, but you still have all the jittery editing, the wipes, yeah, the terse dialogue, the tough guy stuff. Like Christoph Waltz is obviously like the Randolph Scott character. It's it is doing sort of a Bedeker thing, but honestly, the thing that I kept thinking was that like, if Deadwood is like going to the globe and seeing Shakespeare, this is sort of like going to the community theater and seeing somebody do like their idea of Shakespeare. Like I kept thinking it was DTV Deadwood in my head where it's got that like demystified view of the West. Everybody's kind of a scoundrel. The moral, like... There's institutions. There's institutions. The morality of it's very gray. Like, even Christoph Waltz's character, who is a bounty hunter, is basically like, I'm here to do a job. You know, like, he outlines that in very... Yeah, I don't care who you are. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. I don't care if you're black, if you're white, or whatever. I'm just here to make some money, and then I'll go away. Because it, it does try to do a lot of the confrontational stuff, because it's like... You know, the wife runs away with a black man. Um, that's not downplayed, let's say. And no. then Christoph Waltz is paired, you know, with a black guy, basically one of his old comrades who sells him out to essentially like track him down. And so, like, you see the old hill peeking through and being like, I still got it. And I, I liked it quite a bit. But, like, yeah, it. I think this is one that, like, you can only really enjoy and appreciate if you're familiar with Hill's work before. Because, like, if you were to just show this to, like, a normie, it'd be like, oh, there's this new great western. I think you should check it out. It's called Dead for a Dollar. Six ninety nine on DTV. They'd be like, 
what the fuck did you make me spend seven dollars on man it, it's i i agree out of context like i would not show this to a friend um we both watch obviously we're both i don't know what that voice was by the way yours like i we both love hill though you know movie phone voice (laughs) and we wanted to give i wanted to give it a chance obviously and and when i heard it dedicated to bedeker i lost my mind like i gotta watch it like that's fucking great and you see it it's just it feels more of a piece with like hill's deconstructions than anything and also like the digital stuff is like it's good to remember that in wild bill which was another kind of like let's say checkpoint before he got to uh, Deadwood mm-hmm. um, that had those weird, like digitally shot, like almost like dreamy, like flashback type sequences in it that were completely, uh, they stood out against like the, the rest of the movie, which was shot on film and stuff. So like he wasn't against like playing around with the, these new technology and, but like dead for a dollar just feels limited which might put it more in line with Bedeker to where like when you watch his movies they were all sub 80 minutes and have like four locations yep that's why yep it it, kind of does put it in line with that but again I don't I don't know if I'm ready to get on that bandwagon like 100% yeah I'm just excited by anyone mentioning Bud Bedeker let alone you know doing a film dedicated to them you know he's not what we said super talked about in, in Hollywood. Um, right. But you know, I was, I was thinking about with dead for a dollar. This is definitely a year. I'm kind of stealing an idea from a friend of, this is a year of, of writers and directors, male writers, and directors kind of doing these films that look back at their careers, you know? So we have like, you know, crimes of the future, which I would show to someone without context and be like, this is a great, I think it's a great movie. Um, maybe we, I, I, well, if they're, if they're into weird shit, um, yeah. but I think it works on its own. Um, or, you know, that we have the Fablemans coming out next week here, which I'm excited for, um, Cormac McCarthy's new book, uh, the passenger is very much this like kind of looking back at his career and it's about, it's like a very, we kind of talked about with Michael Mann's Miami Vice being the most man movie versus the best, you know, that kind well, of thing. Even his heat too is like this, the greatest older director, like, yeah, looking back and playing the greatest hits. Schrader is now completing his lonely, like old lonely man, like kind of trilogy. Yeah. Master Gardener. Yeah. You have all of these guys looking back at their careers now and trying to do revivals or summations in one way or another. This feels, if we're talking about Schrader, this feels more akin, honestly, to the era where he was doing shit like the canyons where it was like lower budget. It was like, what do you, what's kind of happening here? And then he came back strong with first reformed. Right. You know, he had like canyons and doggy dog are like, what's going on. And then also with the foe and first reformed is like a real return and the card counter as well. You know, and this feels like maybe if we get a few more hill, you can get back into the with some little more budget. It's quiver releasing. They always kind of release shit. Um, And so not too surprised in the budget. Yeah. Hopefully we get a couple more from him. I'd love to. But he's what got to be pushing his 80s. He's 83. Holy shit. I think he's 83. Yeah. I mean, he's in his 80s. So, yeah. You want to do questions now? Let's do it. All right.
questions about 1984's Streets of Fire, Martin, top three Walter Hill, go. I mean, number one, obviously, Streets of Fire. <laughs> Done. Number two, um, I'm going to go 48 Hours just because I love that film. I watch it a lot. Um, this is one of the hardest top threes I've ever had to do to like where to put number three in. Stop bitching. Um, Stop stalling. Probably going to say Last Man Standing, actually. At um, two? Mm-hmm, a three. Wait, so what's two? 48 Hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. I so, missed that. I was busy making fun of you. Yeah, so put that in at three. But like that's honestly a tie with Extreme Prejudice and Southern Comfort as well. Wait, you're going to put Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing. Make the case for Last Man Standing real quick. Because I actually really like it. It's just like I would never put that above Extreme Prejudice. This was, I saw this in theater with my dad and my friend James. He took us. Like 14, 15 years old? I was 13. Okay. Um, and I was a huge Bruce Willis fan. Like, Die Hard was my favorite movie sure. at this point. I watched it, like, once a week. And this is, like, peak Willis when he's, like, one of the biggest stars ever. Movie star. It's, I think it's just a delightful, like, action romp. And again, in this fantasy world, it's like the Prohibition era. It's the South. It's Texas. But it's, I, like, a Prohibition era that's dominated by, like... Stock members from The Sopranos. It's so strange. When you got our, our boy, uh, we didn't bring up David Patrick Kelly, his one of his favorite actors. One of his up. great stock players. I mean, out of many stock player stock players that he would kind of amass over the years. Well, that's what you think about David Patrick Kelly. Like he was also famous for like Twin Peaks, but like I feel like when you watch The Crow, that's them doing a Walter Hill like kind of world. It feels like at times of like his. Uh, his, yeah, I never his thought dark, about his that. dark comic book world of this is not reality. It's not Detroit. This Only is- a comic book actually existed. That's the difference. Is that Hill was just conjuring these things out of his head. Absolutely, and I, but I think it's interesting that you know you get that kind of feel. You get David Patrick Kelly kind of coming from that Warriors vibe of like you know you ain't, you stay dead. You look at him the RoboCop thing. Um, but I love. I think the shootouts are his like biggest budget. These are probably his, some of his biggest budgets next to Extreme Prejudice shootouts. He was able to shoot. So it's like full-on hand cannon, throwing dudes through walls. You got like the comic, you have the um, Christopher Walken character coming back. I was going to say, you haven't with, even he, talked about the Walken of his he, all. And he, he keep talking, he's coming back, he's coming back, and he comes with this fucking Tommy gun, which he's like precise with. And it's the same character from Yojimbo of like the, the, the strongest samurai coming back to like stop him. Um, I, I also just love that plot of the Ujima plot of playing both sides against each other. And it's him just again, doing the mythic East. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to do this. Um, it's one of my most watched of his. I own it too. I watch it a lot. So, and again, I, I'm tying it with other ones that I love, but that's why it's so great about Hill. I love having this problem of being able to choose. Oh, sure. It's just awesome. that I'm like, Oh, how do I fucking pick from like 10 movies that I really, really, really like like all of them. But really, Last Man Standing yeah, I'm gonna above go The Driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm not saying it's a better movie. I just, I enjoy it more. Like, that's when I'm... It's why they're favorites, not yep. best. Exactly. Streets of Fire is number one for me. Same. It's just, like, I don't think it's his best movie. I think my number two is his best movie, and that's Extreme Prejudice. Um, I just think Streets of Fire, like you said, is just, like, that shot in the arm, oh, my God, movies can do this, like, revelation. Um that I love extreme prejudice. I mean, it's him doing the wild bunch. I'm not going to argue that with weird milius injected, like commentary about the war on drugs and the Texas border. And frankly, 
Powers Booth doing like bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, like right down to the, the white, the white suit, suit that yeah. War Notes wears. Like he only wears that suit throughout the whole movie. Um, but it, he's just like basically levitating every time he's on screen. Yeah. He's so fucking good. Cause we haven't even talked about one of your favorite parts of extreme prejudice when we were kind of glossing over it is Nick Nolte. And that movie is absolutely incredible. Rip Torn threatens oh to steal the entire uh, film out from under the two of them. I mean, his whole Crooked Rivers, Crooked Men monologue is like straight out of the millius, like Hall of Fame, you know, kind Give of playbook. Yeah. And I mean, Maria Conchita Alonso <sighs> is so fucking hot. In She's that never movie. been more attractive. No. Ever. She's Her- always hot. But in but- this movie, Good God. Her coming out of the shower, that whole scene of her is just like, but he does it a lot in films too, where it's men and women. And it's like men kind of like doing something while the women are like showering. There's a lot of scenes like that in his movies of like women. It's, it's like very like. They exist in the same space in this intimate space that only men and women can share. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So what's number three? Well, it's also the oh, last thing before yeah. I get to number three with that is that it's also the most peck and paw of his movies beyond being the wild bunch because it harnesses that idea of Mexico being this oasis for Mm. bad men and like almost like this fantastical, like I can flee to Mexico. The getaway gets into basically the same thing. If I can just get over the border, if I can just get down there, like there's this entire realm of lawlessness where like you can become a king for nothing. You can run a drug. You can go from being a southern redneck football like, player <laughs> shithead who's best friends with the guy. Because that's one of the best things about Extreme Prejudice we haven't even hit on yet, too. Like, this movie's so fucking... Like, when I rewatched it, I had the experience that you were talking about with Streets of Fire. Is that I rewatched this for the first time in a few years... And, like, I got so just locked into it straight up from the intros with, like... Oh, my God. The, the faked death uh, kind of, like, dossiers of, like, the different members of, like, the, the militia or the, the uh, mercenary force that's mm-hmm. coming down. Um, like, I was just locked into this movie. And then you introduce Powers Booth. And then, like, that scene where we find out that Nolte and Powers Booth... We're like just childhood best friends is like one of the best things Hill's ever done because it sets it up like it's going to be this monstrous showdown between these two like titans on other sides of the law. Because like even though the morality of the entire picture is kind of gray, like he very clearly defines like he does in a lot of his films, good versus evil. This is the cop. This is the crook. And they're coming together and fucking Powers Booth is coming down in that helicopter. It looks like it's about to crash into the side of a mountain. <laughs> like when it was landing, it was one of the biggest things that like caught my attention where I was like, who the fuck is flying that helicopter? Who got fired that day? Yeah, geez Louise. <laughs> but it's like it lands and Powers Booth emerges with, you know, uh, tiny Lister like toting a machine gun and he's like it's okay boys we've known each other forever and then they just take that walk where they talk and they just reminisce about growing up together and like how they were best friends and everything and it's like wow this movie is just working 
on every conceivable like emotional level. And then when you get to the actual like wild bunch finale where everybody just blows everyone else away, it's just mm, chef's it, kiss. It's transcendent. Yeah, I mean, he, it's he, absolutely he, amazing. He reaches those levels that few filmmakers can by also giving you a pure entertainment. Yeah. Like I was reading a review of, of Streets of Fire from years ago, and it was just like, you can't not be entertained by this movie. But because Milius is involved, it ends on that really weird note where like they kill everyone. All that le- that's left is essentially like these like low-level Mexican grunts who are working for Powers Booth. Nick Nolte's basically like, it's yours now. You can do whatever you want with it. And it's all about like, they basically say like, well, we're still going to keep doing this. Like we're still going to keep selling drugs and you're still going to have to come after us. It's like Milius commenting, doing his weird right wing thing about being like the war on drugs is going to go on forever. The Mexicans will always be evil down below the border and peddling this cocaine. So like it's a wild place. Yeah, we have to we have to remember that we'll always be at war with them. And it's like, Oh, thanks John. That's fucking gross. <laughs> Feeling really great about that, buddy. Yeah. You know, this whole movie was sending me out on a high and then you, you threw this in, but like, I love that shit because like, I might not agree with it, but it at least has a point of view. Yeah. Like this movie is distinctly like, this is what this is about. Take it or leave it. Number three is the driver for yep. me. I mean, this was the other one that I hadn't revisited in a while, and I just got completely locked into it. Um, you want to talk about a film that's entirely made up of atmosphere and texture? Like, the characters don't even, purposefully don't even have names. Yeah. You're just existing in this, like, Melvillian approximation of, like, America. Like, those car chases are incredible. The way, like... The city looks at night and like, like this movie kind of gave birth to Michael Mann. Yeah, you were saying like, that. I don't think that thief exists without the driver coming first because they kind of exist in the same hazy urban kind of like dreamscape of yeah. the criminal underworld. Yeah, the, the, you know? the criminal of honor. Yeah. The, the man alone. Yeah. Ryan O'Neill's whole like, and also like you see like Nick Reffin clearly cherry picking oh all God. of drive from this movie, but like, again, doing it in his own style as opposed to like Hills. Although you get why it influences Reffin because it's so European. Mm. Like you can't believe it's another movie that you can't believe like a producer, which Lawrence Gordon was like the his first big like mm-hmm. rabbi as a producer will say. Like you can't believe even he was like, Yeah, sure. Like you can get away with this. Um, because like or that this will be marketable to an American audience because like it's so languid, it's so kind of moves at its own pace, but like when it delivers, the action in it is fucking awesome. Hell yeah. So double feature. Um I'm going to do Streets of Fire with one from the heart um, from uh, Coppola. And I was I had this idea in the shower the other day. I was trying to think of a double feature, and it just popped in because another film that it's so about the back lot. So stagey. It's so purposely stagey because he was also trying to show off American Zoetrope Studios at that point. He's like, that was all his studio. The thing uh, that bankrupted him. Exactly. Right. And he was like, but I'm going to show that we're not going to use any real locations. It's all on set. So it's very art- even more artificial than Streets of Fire. Um, oh, my God. Some of those like club scenes and that with like 
women curling around and giant martini glasses made of neon and like the movie's one of Coppola's like in an entire like ouvoir of in, like visually stunning films like one from the heart is one of the weird like kind of hidden gems Th- that's why I mean it's it's that it's the musical nature it's the musical the Tom Waits it's, soundtrack it's Tom Waits and Crystal Gale and and the Waits and again that mythic like this is more obviously more of a straight up romance than an action film in any in any sense um but you have there's some there's some shots in that movie when they're out at the um the the car fix it place and it's like the walls of cars and behind is this this like painted sunset of Nevada and it's just like makes your it's again it's a movie like it's a movie that's saying I'm a movie like I this is this is not the real world it is pure. It's arch when it wants to be. Um, it, it's not as good as Streets of Fire, but it does reach some real emotional moments, um, even though it's it's not. It reaches real moments while it's not trying to be real. Like, the emotions are real. Um, Terry Gar, very hot in it. She's never, I think, looked better. That and Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's what no feature. What's yours? Also, great Raul Julia performance He's in that one, awesome. too. awesome. And I, I love the, like, the kind of, again, a film about kind of navigating a night world that he does with it. And I just, I kind of like late weird Coppola. Um, and that's, this is one of my, I didn't see it till like last year or two years ago. Like, oh, okay. It was, I came to it super late. I had the soundtracks, me. he's Tom Waits fan. So I knew all the songs, but I'd never seen the movie. So I had that old anchor Bay, like mm-hmm. double disc for like years and watched the shit out of that movie. There was a point in time where I was like obsessed with one from the heart, partially because of its crazy ass backstory of yeah. like, putting Coppola back into bankruptcy for, like, the rest of his life, basically. That's how I love Sorcerer, too. I mean, Sorcerer, yeah. I think, is a better, I think a better movie on its own, but, like, it oh, also yeah. has some crazy... There's a new book about the history of the making of Sorcerer. It's, like, 70 bucks, but I'm just going to do it, I think. Does it's, William Friedkin shout it at you if you buy the audiobook? <laughs> He's so great. Just... I want to get a fucking alarm clock of him just yelling at me every morning to get me up. And then I hired an <laughs> arsonist! <laughs> To blow up part of the jungle, cause I'm fucking William Friedkin. Um, my double's kind of obvious coming from me. It's Phantom of the Paradise. Oh yeah, the Streets of Fire. Like also very theatrical and very, very cinematic. Uh, comes from an auteur doing an auteur thing. Um, you rock know, and roll world. Rock and roll world has to knife fight with. Uh, De Palma's blowout for being my favorite film of my life. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't, do I have to explain Phantom of the Paradise to people? Like if you're listening to the episode 80 or whatever the fuck we're on of Secret Handshake and I have to be like, watch Phantom of the Paradise. That's pretty good. You're probably on the wrong podcast. No, you bring it up probably once a week when we're hanging out. Like it comes up quite often. I have it tattooed on my body. I know I, I know how important it is to you. I, I can't believe I didn't think ahead of time that he's going to pick that, but it is perfect. It is perfect for this movie. Yeah. It's a complete, again. There were two of the movies that like you said, I liked musicals more than you did. Yeah. It sounds I mean, I like. was in musicals. You were in musicals. <laughs> but I didn't but like, like the movies. I, but like, I really liked a lot of them, even the classic stuff like Sound of Music and West Side Story. Like seeing West Side Story on 70 millimeter when they would play it down at the Ritz, like I never missed it because it was just one of the most incredible visual experiences you could have. It looks amazing, especially blown up like that. But like. Phantom of the Paradise and Streets of Fire were two modern musicals that taught me that musicals could be different. 
you know, like they didn't have to be these big, even though they were both like these big kind of soundstage kind of affairs, like they were made by these weirdos who were like, yeah, but what if like we did something totally different here? What if we made these movies? What if we made the eighties action equivalent of like the rock and roll movie or in Phantom of the Paradise's cases, like what if we made like the outsider avant-garde art equivalent that's like super cynical and hates like consumerism and everything. What if we made that into a musical? And it's just like, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. If not the greatest movie I've ever seen. Love it. I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen that in forever. Honestly, maybe we'll do it on my birthday. That'd my be 40th birthday is coming up so we could do, I, I mean, we might do, a double feature of Phantom of the Paradise and Blowout just to see which one I finally agree upon as being my favorite movie ever. Well, I'll buy that new 4K disc. We can watch it over here. Oh, Blowout? Yeah, let's do that. I haven't watched that 4K I yet. haven't either. Ooh, baby. Let's, let's, let's do that. All right. So, remake. Absolutely Yay. not. No? No. The only way I would do it would be like if I were... I would, I would say set it in the same world, but just do something different. Like have some crazy new auteur do their thing with the music of today or, or, or kind of like synthwave eighties music, eighties style music of today or, or find a, a band who really wants to get involved. Everything you're saying sounds awful and I'm getting more on your side of no. So I'm just saying like, I'm saying the things almost maybe I'm saying the way things would be done. This is how Hollywood would do it is, or you'd pick a musician. What are the kids like? Yeah, what are the kids like? Or you pick actually a good musician who like loves this movie and is like, I'm going to do like my version of Streets of Fire. Like a musician with that kind of power. I don't know who that would be, um, who I would be okay with doing that, but... Lin-Manuel Miranda's get Streets of Fire. fuck out of here. Oh my <laughs> God. So I'm just honestly, no. Yeah, I... It was kind of like, did you ever see the Valley Girl musical? I did not. That they did with our girl from... Uh... Happy Death Day. It was a musical? Yeah. With uh, who played Tree in Happy Death Day? Yeah. I don't know. Jessica. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. Like, don't watch it. Okay, I won't. It is the movie that you're describing. They're like, remember Valley Girl? What if we made it hip? And it was like, ugh. But that's what they would do. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, I'm kind of on the same page. Like, I would like to see somebody attempt a Streets of Fire type movie. Maybe oh. not a remake of Streets yeah. of Fire. Like, like what is a, you know, Timo Tanejo's oh. like version of Streets of Fire look like? Did you ever see the Albert Pune sequel, Road to Hell? No. It has Michael Pere in it. It's horrible. But no. like, because it's late, it's, it's like late 2000s. Late Pune, not good. Is it an actual sequel? Yeah. It has Mark Perez. As Tom Cody? Tom Cody. Ooh. It sucks. <laughs> like, it's, 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 you know, we ride hard for Pune, but I mean, like, this was one of those, like, late period ones where you're like, ah, what are you doing? I see where you're doing, Albert, but maybe not. Can we stop? <laughs> yeah. So, Face Melter. Yay, nay. Yes. I, I, yeah. I, I think this is a movie that you show to anybody with any music taste, with any movie taste. And you're like, just try not to fucking tap your foot and get in. Right. And it's, and I think if you have no idea going in what the movie is, it will be, it's constantly surprising. 
it's just it's just fun. It is just a pure entertainment. It like it just from the first frame to the last frame just carries you on this fun hour and a half. It never lags. There's like not one sagging moment. And they keep adding shit in like when they meet the Sorrells and they start singing the, that wonderful moment on the on the bus when they're singing to her and she's just smiling. Yeah. It's just, you almost see like they, they always love music too. It's this wonderful moment of like we're here together on this adventure but isn't this nice? I don't know. Like I love every scene of this movie and I would I love sharing it with people. I'm showing it to friends they're like what? It is and it does melt faces when they see it. Yeah, I think it's inarguable. Yeah. Like I you I've watched this movie work whole crowds over. I've watched it in my living room. I've listened to the soundtrack a billion times. I own it on vinyl. I watch YouTube clips every now and again just to like remember certain things about her, just revisit. Like it's just it's awesome. Like it just it's one of those straight up like dopamine delivering devices that kind of doubles as a piece of cinema that you can't deny. Like if anybody watched streets of fire with me and was like, that was okay. I would be like, get out of my house now or like simply like, okay, just stick to sports. Like you're that's for you. You know, cinema is clearly not your back. <laughs> you don't get to have an opinion on movies anymore. Yeah, we, you, you've given up your fucking membership card. Yeah, you are only allowed to subscribe to Maxim Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, this has been great. Oh, this is an enjoyable one. We got to talk about one of our favorite directors of all time. What's next? Um, another great filmmaker we love. Yeah, yeah. At a Q and A that we hated. Oh, we cannot wait to tell you all about. And I, I hinted at earlier in this episode. You hinted at, and I, I didn't. I thought we were going to spill the beans pretty early about how much. Wow, what an experience we have to relate to these people. But they're going to have to tune in for the next episode of Secret Handshake. Stay tuned. See you next time. Oh